I'm excited because we're starting a new series. I always get excited each, each time we, we jump into something different. And this one will be different in that we are going to focus on one passage, that parable that Rachel just read, for four weeks and look at it from different angles because there's so much in that one passage that four weeks probably is not enough. I, I am using as a... a as a guide, or I'm gaining some insights from a particular book called The Prodigal God by Tim Keller. And I would encourage you to read, read the book as well. There's some, there's some things within this that I'll be highlighting, but they'll, you know, there'll be other things as well. And I think there's things that you can get on your own out of it. We, we want to make that available. We're going to have some, uh, someone will be in, Kate will be in the, uh, missions cafe. There's some books we have. If you want to buy one and walk out, $10. We'll, we'll, you can walk out with one today. If they run out, let us know. Put your name down. We'll order more for next week. You're also welcome simply to get it on your own, however you want to do that. But uh, we, we'd love to have you read along because we think... I, I, Tim Keller changed the way I looked at this parable. Some of the insights he brings are, I think, revolutionary. And one of them is even in the title of his book called The Prodigal God. The word prodigal means to, to spend extravagantly. And Tim points out that the father spends extravagantly. The extravagant grace of God shows up. A father who cares so much about his lost son, he, he wants him to come home more than anything else. And that leads me to my opening illustration. And it, it's one of my favorite of the Disney cartoon movies, Finding Nemo. For all you parents out there, if you haven't watched it with your kids, this is, this is one of the best. And it's about Marlin, the father of Nemo, the, the clownfish, who's he's a clownfish, but he's not funny, it, it's, it seems. But he's very protective of his son Nemo, doesn't want Nemo to, to go out into the deep ocean because he thinks that's dangerous. And he's overly protective, and Nemo rebels a little bit. And Nemo sees a little boat far away um, over the deep thing. And Nemo wants to prove how brave he is. And so instead of obeying his father to stay in the shallow end, Nemo rebels and goes and touches the boat and ends up getting captured by a, a snorkeler. And he's taken to the, the, the guy takes him to his dentist office aquarium. And so Marlin finds out his son is, is gone far away, and the, the bulk of the movie is Marlin pursues his son. He travels wherever, goes searching for his lost son to, to bring him back. It's a great, great story, and I think it captures the gist of what, what, we wanted, what Jesus wanted people to see about God. The, the God you think you know, it's different than, than you, you, you think so. And so we're going we're to focus this morning on the son who went far away. We'll see this parable. Actually, it says it has two sons. To this morning, we're going to focus on the, the younger son who went away and went far away from the father. Next week, we're going to focus on the elder brother. The basic story, Jesus frames the basic story, and I'm going to suggest there are five key story elements, um, inflection points in the story that are some even bit of a surprise within him 
that, that those are things Jesus is trying to teach. So I first want to run through the story and kind of highlight these five points, and then we're going to come back and say, what is Jesus trying to teach in those key elements of the story? And the first surprise is how the son, the younger son, asks for his inheritance early, and then the father actually gives it to him. So if one of your children did something like that, right? If, if one of your kids said, hey, daddy-o, you know, I'm, my girlfriend and I, we want to go out to like Portland and, and, you know, do something. And hey, I don't want to wait for you to die. Can I get my inheritance now? Like, like what? You can't wait till I'm dead? You know, you would, you would not you know, it would not be a good idea as a parent to actually give in to that thing. It's a, it's a, the fact that the father accedes to that, that is surprising. Um, especially, I mean, in our day, we have bank accounts. We can transfer wealth easily. But what was his wealth in? It, the, the wealth of the father was in his land, livestock, and, and that was not easily divided. And yet it says the father divided his estate. In other words, they would have sold off land and divided out the, the, the livestock and sold it off so that this younger son could go far away. Jesus is saying something, and we'll come to what he's saying in that, that key element of the story. The second key element is, is how life in the distant country is a lot harder, a lot harsher than the younger son expected, right? First of all, he blows through that inheritance in half a verse, right? He squandered it in, in wild living. The meaning of the word prodigal is that, that's where you get the word prodigal son is the, the extravagant spending idea. That's what the prodigal part means. And, and so it's all gone. And then he has to try to live apart from his father and his father's wealth. And that is a lot tougher than he imagined. He hires himself out to a pig farmer. And got nothing against pig farmers. I've had a few pig farmer friends. But in the Jewish context, that would have been considered disgusting. Right? The, the Jews, that was an unclean animal. And so here he is working for a pig farmer and then it amps up the disgust level by saying he saw the food the pigs were eating and wished he could eat some. He was that hungry. And the key line, but no one gave him anything. Right? It's a lot harder than back at home. The third key story element, the surprise, the son comes to his senses and actually begins the journey home. You see, he, he sees things differently in the harshness and in his, his hunger, right? It, it, it re, re, re enables him to see what he could not see before. My father's hired men had bread to spare. They had enough. The desperateness of his situation leads him to reevaluate his father. He had some blind spots, but what makes this a surprise, I think, is this. To come home involves humbling himself. He has to own up to how bad his decision was to walk away from the father. How often 
do people stick out horrible situations because of their pride and unwillingness to admit how wrong they might be? Right? I think in normal situations, people will endure horrible things because they're just too dang proud to say, man, I, I messed up. I should, have, I should not have done this. He, he begins his plan he, he, to, in his journey home with a plan. He's going to go back to his father, own up to the bad decision. You know, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you, and ask to be a hired hand. Right? He, he gets his speech ready for the journey home. And then that leads us to surprise number four. The father sees his son even when he's still a long way off and, and does what would be unthinkable for a, a father of a household, for the you know, patriarch of a household. He runs, right? He hitches up his, his uh, whatever they would have ro- robish kind of thing and, and starts running you know, established men of honor did not run in that culture. You know, they didn't do like 5Ks all the time like we do. But so he, he runs to his son and welcomes him back. And, and so I, I told this, kind of went through this story, this parable with my son, my son Ben, to say, you know, what, what do you think the son would be expecting to, to, to hear from his father, you know, when, you know, knowing that the son had just spent all this money, all this inheritance, and, and Ben says, oh, you know, the father's going to say, we're going to have to work really hard, you're going to have to do double chores, right? Like, and he's right, that's exactly what you would expect. Oh, you're going to have to prove to me you've changed. But instead, the father welcomes him back graciously, and, and when the son starts to give his prepared speech, the father interrupts him. And he says, um, when the father receives him back, not as a, a mere hired hand, but receives him back as a son. Right? He meets the immediate need. Sandals for his feet, a clean robe, right? showing how, how, how things have gotten for the son. But then a ring for his finger. That's not meeting a need. That's declaring he's still in the family. This is a son, right? And then they have a celebration feast, and he declares, my son was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And then the second half of the story is the other son who's resentful and refuses to come in, and we'll, we'll dig into that. To understand what Jesus is wants us to take from this, you got to know the context. So Luke 15 begins with a, the ministry that Christ was doing and a challenge he faced. So it says that Jesus was uh, receiving, interacting with tax collectors and sinners. Doesn't specify more clearly like what that meant. It says tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, hear Christ, hear his teachings. And, and Jesus wasn't turning them away. He was letting them hear and be a part of it. He was interacting with them, befriending with them, maybe even eating with them because it says the, the religious leaders, the Pharisees and 
and the scribes grumbled, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So non-religious people were drawing near to Jesus. These were prodigals, people who'd made bad life decisions. So Jesus tells this parable to, to help them understand what's going on. The other things that shows up in the, the parable, so the tax collectors, the, the technical term was publicans. These were, these were Jews who hired themselves out to the Romans, to the unclean Gentiles, just as the son had hired himself out to a pig farmer. And so they, they, they collected taxes from their own people. The, the religious leaders of the time said they should have nothing to do with God's people. They, they, they're shut out. And so the, the scribes, they're grumbling, they're resentful, just like the elder brother would be about the reception of his son. And note what they say, Jesus eats with them. How often in this parable the, the action is about the, the, the son who's, who's famished to death and the, the, the great meal that they're going to have, the, 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 the fattened calf and the feast that they're going to have. So in the midst of that, that verse 1 and 2, then Jesus tells actually three parables. The first one is about a, a lost sheep that's found, a lost coin that's found, and the one we're dealing with, the lost son who comes home. And what Jesus is communicating is, is that he, in this parable, he's, he's come to teach about the open door of salvation. And he wants to invite sinners to enter into it. That is the purpose, Jesus, for which he came. In Luke 19, it says... Um, when, when one person responded, a tax collector, Jesus said, salvation has come this day for the Son of Man, meaning himself. The Son of Man came, has come to seek and to save the lost. Jesus came that people like this could know they could come home to the Father and would be welcomed. He told that parable so that would be understood. So, so let's... Let's consider then this, this parable. What are, the, what are the insights? Based on the five surprises, I got five insights that come off of this. The first is this. To be lost is to live apart from God and outside of his household, his, his care. If God is the shepherd who gathers the flock, to live outside of the flock is to be lost. It's that image. We people, or all human beings, are made in the image of God. And that means we're made to know God and be known by God. We're made to live with God in a relationship with him, to, to, to connect with him. And we're also made to, to learn to live the way he, he directs, to live in his ways. But because of sin... We all, all human beings at some point, have become separated from God and his ways. The, the shortest description is Isaiah 53, 6, right? We chose to go our own way rather than follow God. Isaiah 53, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each has turned to his own way. So this, the, the parable kind of 
conveys that idea that if you do that, if you go your own way, what happens? You are living apart from God. That's what it means to be lost. Tim Keller talks about one of the ways in which we walk away from God is he calls it the path of self-discovery. It's the idea of I can find life on my own terms. I don't need God to, to do it. So in, in page 31 on this book, you'll see, it says, the person choosing the way of self-discovery says, I'm the only one who can decide what is right or wrong for me. I'm going to live as I want to live and find my true self and happiness that way. That is the way of the modern secular mindset, right? Life is found by looking within, right? Look within and it'll tell you how you should organize your life, how you should be and and do, rather rather than looking to religion, rather than doing what some preacher tells you to do, right? Or what some deity tells you to do. Have you ever seen like the atheist's uh, meme or idea that says, you know, you don't need some divine being to tell you right or wrong. If, you know, if you're really, you're, you're supposed to figure out right or wrong for yourself. The way of self-discovery. That's the picture. What does the Bible kind of give in response? Is Jeremiah. Jeremiah says those who are trying to find inner meaning on their own, he compares it to, to trying to get water from a broken cistern. Says, my, my people have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Right? People will look inside for meaning and purpose, and eventually they'll find that the well is dry that it, it will not give them the life that they think, they think they'll find. And that's what Jesus is conveying for the son when the money runs out. Eventually, that money runs out. We're all living off the resources of our father. We were all given life by God. We were made by him. We live in his, the world that he made. We're living off his resources, but we'll find if we live apart from him, the resources will eventually run out. And it's not that God wants us to, to, to keep us away. And in fact, God sets it up that, that the way to home is open. In Acts 17, Paul was talking to the Athenians. And he says, God set up the world and he put peoples here and there. And, and, and for all mankind, he, he set the boundaries of where we live. And, but he says for this purpose, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. That is God's intent for, for, for people, that we would find him. He's not, he's not pushing us away. And so that leads to the surprise too is that uh, the insight number two is life in this world apart from God involves difficulty and hardships. It involves difficulty and hardships with God, but it especially does when we we, we fall away from what God does. When, when our children grow up, we often have a protective environment to, to protect them from the harshness of life, as we should. It's part of, we give kids space to, to learn and grow and, and, before, and to sink roots 
before they get hit by the storms of life. As best we can, we try to enable that. But what happens when we realize life is hard? That, that things don't go well, that people are not always nice, that they don't always share. What happens when you hit middle school, in other words? Right? When, when it's, it's tough out there. And so the, the temptation to say, well, that's not fair. That's not how it should be. Right? We assume life should be easy and go well for me. Let me give you the best line from The Princess Bride. Life is pain, highness. Anyone who says differently is selling something, right? It, life is hard, and it is a challenge to get through. And, and so that's what the son experiences in the far country. It says he's starving to death, and no one gives him anything. The pig farmer is not like his, his father, who was generous to his hired men. Instead, he's barely given, he's not given him anything. How do you respond when that realization hits in life? How do you respond? There's two routes. One is be resentful towards God for not making life easier. God owes you and he's not paying up. Right? To, to, God should have made the world so that I am happy. God should have made things so that I, I get what I need. And you can stand before God and recite all the ways he has let you down. That's one option. And I think many choose it. The other option is to realize God the Father is good. Yes, there are hardships in life. As Christians are not immune from those hardships. But we are better equipped to face and prevail and face the challenges of life with God. And part of his people, part of his household, and under his care than we are in a faraway country. Insight number three, salvation is coming home and being received by the Father, um, be received by the Father as, as one of his and into his people. I love the line, when he came to his senses. It can also be translated, when he came to himself. Right? He steps back from the life he's been living and he, he sees, this is not what I was made for. This is not what I was meant to be. Right? He, he, he knows enough to know that, that life is different with, with the Father. And, and he, he takes stock of his life. And the key to him being able to respond to this way, and I've already kind of hinted at it, is humility and honesty. He takes an honest look at his life and he has the humility to acknowledge that he's where he's at because of his own decisions. Rather than blaming his father for not giving him big enough inheritance, he sees he's where he's at because of his choices. And I think that's what 2 Corinthians 7 is talking about when it says godly sorrow brings repentance, humility, that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow just brings death. It occurs to him he can go home. 
Salvation is coming home to the Father. It, so I said humility and honest. There's all one other component, trust. It's instead of trusting ourselves to figure out life on our own, instead of insisting, I, I know what I, I need, I, I, have all, I have life, I know the way life should be run, it's saying, maybe God knows better what I need for my life. Maybe I can trust him with, with my decisions, with the direction, with how I should live. It says in Proverbs, trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Life is better when we trust God and trust it into God's hands. The fourth insight, and this is big. God is not set against sinful mankind, but stands ready to welcome any who turn to him. That's different when the, the religious leaders of Jesus' time were thinking. The father sees the son and welcomes his home. He's, 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 the stance of the father is not against his son. The stance of the father is looking out, waiting to see if his son will come home. That is God's vantage point. Back to Acts 17, it says um, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him, yet he is not actually far from each one of us. In this parable, Jesus is, is letting us know there is no barrier from God's side for people finding grace and forgiven. Have you ever encountered maybe a non-church person, non-believer, who thinks they're just, not, they're just not welcome to come back to God. That they said, well, if I walk in that church door, the building's going to fall down on top of me. Right? That's, that's what they're thinking. Um, they think God would not accept them if I did come. This parable is, is, is showing how wrong that idea is. Um, the father's waiting. You saw him for a long way off. He's not looking in anger. He's not waiting to scold. It says when the father saw him, it says he had compassion. The word for that is, is he felt it in his guts. He felt compassion in his guts for the children. Just like when it said in, in another place about Jesus, it says when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, for he saw that they were like sheep without a shepherd. That is God's stance towards people, even and especially lost, hurting, broken, sinful people. God is not waiting just to get them for the wrongs they've done. Those who do receive salvation... God stands ready to welcome home. It says it's, God is not far from you. In Romans 10, it, it says it, it's as easy as this, coming home. If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. God does not make it hard. And if anyone here has never taken that step of responding to the Father, Maybe God brought you here this morning for this very purpose, that you in your heart of hearts would, would speak and say, Jesus, I'm ready to, to, to say yes to you as my Lord. And that you believe in your heart that God gave him to, to die for our sins and raised him from the dead to show we can have life. 
You, are, you will be welcomed this morning here in this place into the kingdom of, of God. If you make that decision, you can make that decision in the quiet of your own heart. I'd encourage you to talk to someone so we can help you get started in, in living it out. But that decision is, is near to us this morning. I love that picture of the, the child jumping into the father's arms. That's what it can feel like. And that leaves us the, the last of the insights, the fifth one. It says, when we put in our faith in Christ, we are received as sons and daughters of God. It's a picture of grace. What does the son deserve? At least a good scolding. What does he deserve? Years of working as a hired hand to try to pay back the father. But what does he get instead? The father gives him welcome into his kingdom, forgiveness of sins, and, and more than just forgiveness, they're received as sons and daughters of God. Galatians 3 speaks about that. It says, when, when you put your faith in Christ, it says you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Right? You are received as a son or daughter of God. Later in Galatians 4, it says, um, God sends a spirit into our hearts to, to convince us that God is our Father, that you are no longer a slave or hired hand, but a son. And if you're a son, then you know you're an heir through God. There's a lot more to be said about what it means to live up to that sonship. Right? If someone responds to Christ and is received as a son or daughter of God, it will change their life. It's supposed to change your life. And and we are called, if we've made that decision, to live under the authority of our Father, to live in relationship with Him. And, and He's a good Father, and we can trust His Word to us to live it out. And so our call is not to, to co- continue sinning, but to live as sons and daughters so that we can well represent our Father. But the crucial point, point is not that we earn our way back, but that when we come home, we are welcomed, first and foremost, as sons and daughters of God. I want to dig deep into this parable. And I want to, I want to think even this morning, what are some things, as I, as I work on this, there, there's so much in here. And the one insight I want to start off with is, the heart of this parable is, is that you can't hold on to the blessings of God apart from God. Let me explain that. The son was glad to have the inheritance from God. He just didn't want to be with his father. And likewise, I think people, everyone wants God to bless them. Everyone wants good things from God. But not everyone wants God in their life as their father or shepherd and what this parable is saying is that you can't, have, you can't have the blessings of God ultimately unless you're living with God, unless he's, you've received him as your father, your Lord, your Savior. If you live apart from God, eventually the inheritance runs out. So I want to connect this parable to, to what it means to, to understand God as, as the judge, Right? Where, where is, is this, is this all grace? Is there no issue with sin here? 
this parable definitely focuses on the grace and goodness of, of the Father, but we also know God is the judge of all mankind. He is righteous and holy. And there are other parables by Jesus that focus on how, God, how all mankind stands before God and his judgment on their life. So where does judgment, where does that fit into this, this parable? And I think it's in three places. One is, the, the first one, the father allows the son to leave. That's actually an aspect of God's judgment. It is not an example of how we're supposed to raise our children. It's not parenting advice. Don't, don't take it as that. But it's, it's saying this, God does not force anyone to, to be with him or obey him. He allows people freedom of agency. If we don't want to be with him, if we want to live apart from him, he will not force us to do otherwise. Now, I don't say that we have free will because I'm, I'm convinced that our will is captive to our passions and our sinful desires. But I do say we have freedom of agency and that God will not compel us to live with him or amongst his people if we don't want to. He wants people to voluntarily decide to place themselves under his care. So that's the first aspect of judgment. God lets people walk away from him if they want. The second aspect of his judgment comes this. If a modern person was retelling the story and they think God is love, he will never, you know, do bad for us, how, how would they retell the story? They'd say, they might retell the story this way. It says, when the father heard that the son had run out of money and was living in harsh conditions, he, out of compassion and love for his struggling son, sent a servant with a bag of silver coins and the message to spend his money more wisely this time. Right? That's what the world wants the parable to be. Right? God will, will keep funding us even as we reject him and live apart from him. No, part of the aspect of judgment is the money eventually runs out. God allows men and women and people to experience the consequences of our bad decisions to discover for himself that the cistern is empty. He discovered the bankruptcy of life apart from him. You know, sometimes people feel God owes it to them to make life go well even as they, they turn away from him. It's like the adult child who wants independence, but yet still wants mom and dad to pay for everything. God does not give us that. That's not how it works. In fact, I think there's a severity to God in allowing people to get what they ask for. And then the third aspect of, of the judgment is if what would have happened if the son would have never come home? He would have been lost to the Father forever. Note what the Father says. My son was dead and was lost. Until he came home, his destiny was eternally being separated from the Father. Likewise, the judgment of God is in this. If if we don't respond to the offer of grace and come home, there's no other way to get back to God. We will find ourselves alienated from God and lost into eternity. 
If a man or woman does not receive forgiveness through Christ and become reconciled to God the Father, they will be eternally alienated, shut out from God's presence. Implicit in this parable is the final judgment of hell. It's implicit, but it's there. C.S. Lewis makes a contention. He says, um, no one goes to hell except those who choose it. And no one goes to heaven except they choose that. And he's talking about this idea that if you really want God, it, not just what God has for you, right? It's, it's not that, oh, no one chooses hell intentionally, but, but what they'll say is, I want my own way. No one who says, who's willing to say to God, I I trust you and I give you my life. God will not turn that person away. It's ultimately what they choose, they get. If you choose God, you get God for eternity and all that comes with God. But if you don't want God, then you get what God, God will give you what you ask for. And you can, he'll let you walk away from him for eternity. Salvation is open and free, but it's not on our terms. Another thing implicit in this parable, you might ask, well, what about like the, you know, the cross? Is that, is that in here? You know, we know that the salvation comes through Jesus dying on the cross. How does that fit into, the, where's the cost of forgiveness? So this parable doesn't seem to mention that in part of the story. Or does it? <laughs> There's two things. Who bears the cost of forgiveness? The father. The, the son had spent everything. So the robe, the sandals, everything, the party, the feast, is all paid for by the father. He pays the cost of forgiveness, just as God paid the cost of forgiveness. And there's one other little, it's, it's, it's more of a hint, but how many times does it say, kill the fattened calf? The cost of forgiveness involves death but it's not a fattened calf. Instead, the death that would purchase the forgiveness for for men and women who've gone astray is the Son of God. Romans 5.10 says, If for when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? The last thought I want to bring to this. Why did Jesus tell this parable? Right? So I love this picture. I've used it before. It's this idea of the cross. Through the cross, there's a way open. The way open to God is available by trusting in him. Jesus told this parable so that the sinners and tax collectors and others around him knew that they could be welcomed to welcome back to God. That they didn't need to... to I mean, the, the, if it was up to the religious leaders, they would, they would always forever felt shut out from ever coming back to God. Jesus wanted them to know, no, there, there's a way through to life, to the Father, to everything you're looking for, to, your, to what's the, the, the deepest desire of your hearts. Last week, we had, we had a guest speaker, Ricky, who talked about the work of us is sharing Jesus with people. Could this parable be a, a really good way to, 
to kind of convey the welcome that God has for people. I've more than a few times on, you know, after a, a outreach meeting or a Bible study or whatever and talking to a teenager, if I wanted to find out what they were thinking about, I says, hey, here's the story. Where would you put yourself within it? Where would you, how would you see yourself? If, if, this, is, if this is a picture of what God's like, are, are you willing to come home? So I think it's a brief way of describing the gospel. But here's the key. Jesus is a friend of sinners. He's a friend to people who are living in lost and broken lives. I want you to know, um, people of God this morning, it is okay for us to be like Jesus. It is okay for us to make friendships with lost, sinful, broken people. Maybe it's even what God wants us to do if we're to be like him, to, to, to build bridges in our relationships with, with those. Now, we, we do need to be wise in that we, we make sure we stay rooted in God's word, we stay rooted amongst God's people so that we're not ourselves led astray. But it is okay to, to build good friendships, to actually like people who, who may, in some areas of their lives, be making some really bad decisions. To find the good in them, even when they're still bad. Right? That's how we communicate this gospel, this message, to people out there. I was listening to a podcast uh, by, uh, the, it's called The Holy Post, and it, it's, it was a, the, the guy, guy was talking, his name is David French, and he was saying how, how he, he has a tendency to argue with people. And he, he looks back at some, especially his college days and other times, when he was so adamant in an argument that he, he, uh, he kind of battered people a little bit. And he, he talked about this principle. If you approach someone, if you see someone as bad and, and you're against them, what are they going to do? Repay the favor they're going to be against you as well. But if you like someone and, and communicate that you like them, that you appreciate them, oftentimes they will do the same for you, even if you are different in your, your thinking on, on issues. It's possible um, through our kindness and generosity with people to gain an open door for the good news of Jesus. Now, they may return your kindness with anger and spite, but if, if they do, it's okay. We can take it, right? We, yeah, we, we have God as our Father, right? We can take it, right? But, but it might be even more possible that they just might be open to the idea that if we are not against them, maybe God's not against them either. And so as we get ready for, for closing, closing worship song, I want you to, to have that idea of, of how can I take this message? How can, I, how can I convince the people around me who do think God is against them? How can I help bridge that gap so they realize that God is a good father who's ready to welcome them home? Father, I, I thank you that you're, you're not set against the broken, lost people of this world 
but your heart's intent, your heart's desire is that they would come home. Father, by some means, would you use us in the lives of the people we know to, to, to communicate that, that goodness to them? We pray all this in the name of your Son. Amen.